As the school year winds down here, there's all sorts of celebrations we have going on, aren't there? There's kindergarten graduations, there's middle school graduations, there's high school graduations, there's college graduations, open houses galore, maybe you went to some yesterday or today or you've got some coming of it. Maybe at times it feels like a little bit of overkill, but we see all these things that have been learned and all these things that have been accomplished, and it's a good desire to want to celebrate all of these things that have been learned. But the thing that amazes me is not so much what we teach kids, but what kids know without ever being taught. That's the part that really sticks out to me. They've never seen Leonardo DiCaprio's movie, Catch Me If You Can, but they know how to get a cookie without being caught. Right? They've never read Donald Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, but they are amazing negotiators when it comes to bedtime. Right? <laughs> They've never had a class in moral reasoning, but at the slightest wrong, they are quick to point out, that's not fair. How do they know? I don't know, but they definitely know. And so I've been working on a hypothesis, like how, how do they know all of this stuff? And especially the part about not being fair, like that just seems to, that seems to come at birth almost. Like before they can even talk, they know that phrase. It's kind of two things is what I've been working on. First, there's a little bit of jealousy going on, or maybe a lot, right? We just always want more, more, more snacks, more gifts, more time in the pool, one more show on the iPad. I just want more. I've got to have more. And if somebody else has, you know, more than me or something, like, that's, that's not fair. It can't be that way. But the, the, the second part there is I think they just have their little antennas, like, so precisely attuned to anything near favoritism that they have to shout, be like, no, it can't be that way. And I don't know exactly how they get so precisely attuned, but it does happen, it seems. And so those two sins of jealousy and favoritism, they do seem to play a big, pretty big part in our story, don't they? Like, they're pre-baked into kids, they know that, and we kind of carry them through all of our lives, and they seem to be a pretty big part of all of our stories in a lot of ways. You know, the, the 19th century novel, Little Women, speaks to this just a little bit. It captures the, the jealousy in a really striking way. The little sister, Amy, is so jealous of her older sister's getting to go to the theater that she takes her older sister Joe's handwritten manuscript of the story and throws it in the fire and lets it burn while she's there. If you've ever seen that, it's like a terrible, terrible scene to watch. It like just moves you. You want to cry for her while you're watching it. I got to admit, I wasn't familiar with this until I had girls. And now that I'm a girl dad, I'm like, I watch it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. But you watch the, I mean, just the way she's gripped by jealousy, the rage, the heartbreak, the brokenness that flows out of that jealousy. It's awful. And, and on, the, on the favoritism side of things, I remember being a 12-year-old playing Little League Baseball. If, if you're not familiar with Little League Baseball, the 12-year-old year is by far the most important year. That's your opportunity to go to the famed Little League World Series, aired by ESPN and, and your chance to really hit it big. It's, it's like the pinnacle of Little League Baseball. And so each Towns, teams, duke it out until you get to kind of a, a, a Goliath-type champion who can go off to Williamsport, Pennsylvania and show how great your town is at baseball. Well, my 12-year-old year, you won't believe what happened. 
The dads who voted on the the all-stars, they had sons that they wanted to vote on who were 11 years old. And so they voted the 11-year-olds onto the 12-year-old all-star team so they could have two cracks at fame. And we didn't get any at all. Now, never mind that the, one of the kids that got voted on, he's actually made over $100 million as a pro baseball player. That was my spot. And it was not fair. <laughs> now, my dad has mostly moved on. My mom and I are still processing a little bit. Um, we call it a desire for justice. Here's the point. Jealousy and favoritism really are at the core of the human story in many ways. And you can see it clearly in everything from a 19th century novel that appeals mostly to women to a 21st century story of Little League baseball and testosterone. And everywhere in the middle, before and after, you can see it pretty clearly. And so it's no surprise to us, or at least it shouldn't be, that in the middle of the book of Genesis, or throughout the book of Genesis, we see these two themes as kind of a dominant part of the storyline. And these reach their sort of climactic pinnacle in Joseph's life. Where this, the themes have been building, and finally, in his interaction with the brothers, you see it reach kind of fever pitch and actually a glorious breakthrough. There's resolution and, and actual change. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when we started into Genesis, I told you that all the major plot lines in the book of Genesis reach their fulfillment in the story of Joseph. And this morning, we see one of those major plot lines reaching its fulfillment here. And and I realize we've spent a long time in Genesis. It's been like a year and a half or so. And so I want to kind of zoom out with you just a little bit and track this theme of, of jealousy and favoritism kind of intertwined. And when you see that across the whole of Genesis, then you can see the resolution maybe a little more clearly here in chapter 43. So if we go back to almost the very beginning, Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, what happens? There's, there's jealousy that Abel's offering was accepted by God and Cain's wasn't. So he gets angry. You have the first homicide. Genesis 13, there's the servants of Abraham and Lot. And there's jealousy over which land can we have. There's not enough room. I want the good land. I'm jealous for that land. And it results in family fracturing. Genesis 16, You have Sarai and Hagar. Hagar gets pregnant. Sarai doesn't. Sarai, we're told, is uh, someone who looks with contempt on her mistress. She's jealous of her pregnancy and treats her harshly and kicks her out to the wilderness where she won't be taken care of. Genesis chapter 21, Ishmael and Isaac. There's contempt and derision among these brothers. There's jealousy over who gets the better promises of God. They both receive promises from God, but they're jealous. No, you get better promises, and I don't want you to have those. Genesis 27, Isaac and Rebekah. There's favoritism over the sons, and which son is going to receive more preferential treatment and better treatment. Then later in chapter 27, there's a different kind of jealousy and favoritism. Um, That says Isaac and Rebekah. I meant to say Esau and Jacob there. Esau and Jacob, right? The two brothers They're gripped with jealousy, with hatred, from the favoritism of the blessing that the father gave. Genesis 30, Leah and Rachel, what happens with them? Jealousy over who gets the husband, who gets the kids. They're angry about this. Genesis 31, Jacob and Laban. 
They're jealous over the wealth. Who's acquired the wealth? How do they come up with this? Genesis 37, Joseph and his brothers, you see there on the screen. They're jealous over the favoritism of dad. Who gets this coat of many colors? They get angry, throw him in the pit, sell him off in slavery. And then here in Genesis 43, you have another kind of favoritism with Jacob favoring Benjamin over Simeon. Remember, Simeon is in prison in Egypt, and Jacob refuses to go get him and send the family to go get him because he might lose his favored son, Benjamin. So I count a minimum of 10 relationships there that have been fractured and scarred by jealousy and favoritism throughout the book of Genesis. There's probably others, but this has been a pervasive theme. One thing I think is interesting about this, and this particular I want to point out, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I think this analysis you can see is one reason that if you're starting a spiritual journey, you ought to start with the Bible because you see a literary masterpiece right here in this book. We, we see in it what is a core human condition of jealousy and favoritism being fleshed out over all of our lives. You can see it in, in Little Women and, and Little League stories. And then you see, actually, this thing is the overarching theme, or one of the overarching themes in this first book of the Bible, saying, like, God understands where you're at. And not only is it the overarching theme of that book, but then you zoom into Joseph's life, and it's the theme that's weaving its way through there and actually bringing about resolution, where God is intervening in human affairs, not in a way that destroys human responsibility and human freedom, but he is sovereign over them, And it's all woven together in this book as if to say, here is hope for the jealous, the title of this morning's sermon. Here's true hope for those who are jealous, who have suffered from jealousy and favoritism. So maybe you're not sure if you believe all of the Bible yet, but at a minimum, you have to step back and say, that's pretty remarkable. I think I should see more about this God who would understand where we're at and write the story in such a way as to not just understand, but actually give hope for us. And at the pinnacle of this story is Joseph, at the very end, bringing the brothers together and giving them this epic test. He feeds them well, and as they're eating, he comes along, and he gives Benjamin, the youngest son, five times the blessings. The core question he's trying to figure out is, have you really changed? you nasty brothers, because the last time I was with you and the last time someone showed favoritism, you were gripped by jealousy towards me, actually, and you threw me in a pit. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to re-engineer this, and I'll have your youngest brother there, the one you're probably irritated with, and I'll show favoritism to him. And you don't even know who I am yet, and I'll be the observer, and I'll see, have you changed? Are you still being dominated by this jealousy? And what we find is they have changed, gloriously. And it begs the question, how exactly did they change? It's been 20 years, we don't get all the details, but these guys were, like, they were pretty nasty. You wouldn't want them for your brothers. And somehow God has changed them. How did that happen? And can it happen for us? Or is the person you are today the person you're always going to be? Can you actually change this passage says that God in his grace can and will change you, and it gives us some clues towards how that would happen. Before I jump into those, I want to say one more thing. When we think about pulling out the jealousy and the favoritism from our hearts, 
I think in the brother's life and in our lives, it, it's often like pulling weeds out of a garden, isn't it? No matter how many times you pull those bad boys out, they're always coming back. And it seems a lot of times like they are somehow entirely immune to Roundup, and every strategy I've tried so far, they just keep coming. And you see that in their life, and so in our lives, we ought not be discouraged and beat down by that, but persist in hope that God can and will change us. I see four action steps from Genesis 43 of what we see the brothers and the dad doing to overcome this jealousy and favoritism. I think four steps that we can take from them and apply to our own lives and walk through how do we do this together. Here's the first one. Acknowledge where you are. You've got to start by acknowledging where you are. I hope you've got your copy of God's Word open. I'm going to go back to it frequently this morning. Take a look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 43. Here's what we read. Now, the famine was severe in the land. And when they'd eaten the grain that they'd brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. At first glance, the situation feels fairly hopeless. They're in dire straits. The famine is severe in the land. All the food they bought is gone. And Jacob wants them to go get more food, but he doesn't want to send the youngest son, Benjamin, with them. He's not quite getting the, the situation and how significant it is. Like, no, there's only one way to go get more food. You have to send Benjamin. And so Judah assumes a leadership role. He's one of the sons, and he has some intense fellowship with his dad. Dad, we're going to have a little talk here. You might say he got up in his grill. Like, this isn't going to work, Dad. Let me, you got to acknowledge where you're at. See what's right in front of you. Look, look at verse 3. Here's Judah telling his dad, like, Dad, you have to acknowledge the problem we're in. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us. That's an intro, isn't it? Dad, the, the king of the, like, the land, he solemnly warned us. There's no flexibility on this one. Like, you, you can appeal a decision, maybe, that your parents made. The IRS tells you you're doing this. Like, you're not going to be able to appeal that in the same way. That's what Judah's saying. Okay, we keep reading. The man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Judah goes on and on. He's explaining more and more the rationale. Here's what we got to do. But then he, uh, he has a powerful intro and a powerful conclusion. Look at verse 10. Here's the powerful conclusion. Dad, if we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. We've been sitting around hemming and hawing, talking about it forever, not taking any action. You've got to understand, this is a serious problem. He knows his brother Simeon. He's still in Egypt, in prison. And it basically seems like Jacob was content to leave him there so long as he could save his youngest son, Benjamin. So Judah's essentially saying, he's like, dude, you don't get the picture. We're all going to die here. We've got to do something. And it seems like Jacob kind of starts to understand. He's like, okay, we, we have to do something. I don't like any of the options, but no, option, or no action is not an option. Look, look at verse 14 at the very end of the verse. Here's kind of Jacob coming to acknowledge where he's at. He says, and as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Like, this may not end well, but we have to do something. Jacob starts with the ostrich approach that my mom often told me about. You just stick your head in the sand and hope for the best. And he quickly realizes, okay, that, that, that's not going to work. And I think for us, it's easy to look back at 
Jacob and wonder, how could this guy be so foolish? Simeon is off in prison. How do you think this is going to end without anybody going to get him? Seems like he's sort of in denial. He thinks they can just eat the food they have and somehow, poof, more food will show up and poof, his son will be back. Like, what are you doing here, man? Judah says, no, dad, we have a real problem that requires a real solution. I think for a lot of us, myself included, it's easy for us to be like Jacob and sort of live in a pseudo-denial or an all-out denial of our problems. We can pretend, look, I can just power through this. And we'll say things kind of like this. We'll say, well, somebody has it way worse than me. Well, I understand that statistically that's almost always going to be a true statement. But it doesn't mean that you're not in a really difficult spot right now. It's important to acknowledge where we're at. Or we'll say things like this. We'll say, well, I don't want to be a burden to somebody else. Well, I get that. And that's not necessarily a bad impulse because I don't really want to be a burden to others either. But there are times in our life where we have to just stop and recognize things are not going great right now. i got to acknowledge where I'm at. We need to recognize Galatians 6.1 calls brothers and sisters in Christ to bear one another's burdens in love. When we commit to one another as a church, we're committing in church membership to say, I'm going to love you. I'm going to bear your burdens. And I know there are others who are going to help bear my burdens as well. I'm formalizing that commitment. I I may not have a lot in common with you. I may not know a ton about you, but I'm committing to bear those burdens and have my burdens borne by you. Maybe you'll say something like this. Say, well, it's been way worse before. It's not as bad as it was at that point, so I can power through this thing. Don't we say that sometimes? And again, is that statistically probably a true statement that at some point in time it was worse? Yeah, I, I get that. But again, it doesn't mean that you're not in a difficult spot. And like Judah, we got to acknowledge where we're at. So what what does that practically look like? Like Maybe we're talking jealousy, favoritism here. Maybe it means we just have to recognize, I'm actually fairly discontent with my life right now. Not easy to say that out loud. It's not easy even to think that consciously, is it? That's not a good thing, but I need to recognize I'm enamored with somebody else's job, somebody else's financial position, somebody else's spouse, the joy that somebody, like, why are they so happy? Like, my life doesn't seem to be filled with joy like theirs. Discontent. And acknowledge where you're at. Maybe, maybe it's something where we need to acknowledge, you know what, I don't know exactly why I feel so stressed right now, but I do feel very stressed right now. and I'm not quite sure, but I'm acknowledging where I'm at. Maybe you're, you're in a really dark season. Justin, I don't know if I'm like clinically depressed or not, but I'm just acknowledging right now, I don't see a light at the end of this tunnel. It's critical that we acknowledge where we're at. And let me just tell you the flip side of this. If somebody comes to you, says, Justin, you, you, they were saying to me, someone says to you, Here's where I'm at. I'm, I'm struggling with this or with that. Would you be quick to affirm them and let them know that you love them and care for them? Be quick to say, boy, thank you for trusting me, for loving me enough to share that with me. I know that's hard to say out loud. I want you to know, friend, that I love you deeply. 
And my love for you is never contingent upon you having everything all together. And I'm here with you, and I'm going to walk with you, and I will be with you. And there may be some times where I need to speak some hard truth into your life. We both understand that. But I want you to know if I ever have to say something hard to you or when I have to say something hard, it's couched in a deep love for you. But we have to acknowledge where we're at. It's like the old hymn said, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. It's one of those things we've got to acknowledge where we're at. And it took Judah talking to Jacob having some intense family fellowship for them to recognize, yeah, we got a real problem here and we got to do something about it. They acknowledge where they're at, not to linger in it, but to actually take action. That brings us to our second point. Act in wisdom. You first acknowledge where you're at, and secondly, you act in wisdom. Let your eyes fall back to verse 11 of Genesis 43. Here's what we read. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choicest fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and rise. Go again to the man. What do they do? They act in wisdom by taking these gifts. They, they take on the spirit of humility and submission. They say, Joseph, we recognize you're greater than us, and we're going to bring these gifts to you. This is a wise step for us to take. That part is kind of plainly obvious, but there's something I saw this week that's digging in a little bit deeper that's actually somewhat amazing in this. There's two things listed there, gum and myrrh. Those things are listed only two times in the entire Old Testament. One of them is here in chapter 43. Do you know what the other time those two things are listed, gum and myrrh? It's back in chapter 37 when the Ishmaelite caravan shows up. And do you know what they had with them? Gum and myrrh. It's when Joseph is sold into slavery. And it's almost like, if you kind of piece it together, it's almost like the brothers may have been starstruck by those Ishmaelites. Wow, you guys have the fancy stuff. Gum and myrrh all these jewels. We got to try and impress these guys. Maybe we could get a lot of money for our brother from him. They sell them. They go on their way. They, they get wealthy. All of a sudden, they come to the end of themselves, and they start to realize, you know what? These things that we spend our whole life seeking after, I don't actually need these things as much. To act in wisdom is to say, there are things that I thought I needed that I may not need. I'm going to come, I'm going to give these to Joseph. So a wise step for us to take is to consider, like these brothers, what are the things in our lives that we thought we needed that we may not actually need? It's wise of us to dissect our felt needs. The world tells us there's all kinds of things we need that we know we don't actually need, right? If you're just looking at the messaging from our culture, you're going to understand there are many things being said, you need this that you know you don't need. So when I start to feel like I need something, it's wise to say, do I actually need this? Maybe it's a certain amount for retirement. Maybe it's a particular job. Maybe it's a spouse. Say, I need this. Or maybe it's something a little bit less tangible. Where you say, I need the approval of this child. I need 
the love of my spouse. I need the praise of others. Like, of course, you don't verbally say that over your Cheerios in the morning, and neither do I. I get that. But functionally, that's how we live. And when those things start to fall away, as I'm acknowledging where I'm at, I'm starting to say, boy, what are the things that I think I need? I act as if I need. And maybe like these brothers with their gum in the mirror, I need to say, I may not actually need this. Because what can happen is these things that we, we think we need, they become a little bit like Gollum's ring. They become our precious. And they control us. And they drive us to seek them and to save them. But we know they're all going to be lost at some point. And then what will happen to us? We're wise to say, I don't actually need this thing. I think another way we act in wisdom, and we see it here in the story, is we got to be willing to speak difficult truth and to receive difficult truth. That's the way you act in wisdom. Judah did it. It was wise for him to speak difficult truth to his dad. And Jacob was wise to receive difficult truth from his son. In essence, when you receive that, you say, boy, I recognize I'm not God. I have a limited perspective. And there's wisdom from other brothers and sisters in my life that I need. So I'm going to seek it out. I'm going to ask, hey, can you help me to see what I'm missing in this situation? I'm sure I'm missing something. I don't know what it is. Would you please help me in that? If you've got a friend like that, you know how valuable that is. But I think one of the core questions that we ask is this. How do I develop those kinds of relationships where people can speak difficult truth to me and I can receive difficult truth from people? Sometimes somebody wants to speak truth into your life and you're like, bro, you haven't built up the equity to be able to say that to me, so leave me alone. How do we develop those kinds of relationships? At a simple level, I'd encourage you to do this. Say, are you in a Sunday school class or are you in a community group? You ought to be in one of the two. That by itself is not going to fix everything, but that's a context where deep relationships can be formed, where you can speak and receive difficult truth. If you're not in one, go talk to Pastor Casey. He will help get you connected, and that is the wise action you need to take this morning. But beyond that, there's an aspect of just learning to be a good listener, and continuing to ask questions. Like somebody says something to you, and it makes you think of something else, and you want to tell your story. Resist that. Ask three more questions. Oh, tell me more about that. What happened when this took place? I learned to listen well. We learned to love well. We learned to just give people big hugs. Somebody you're close with, maybe you're a hugger naturally, maybe you're not a hugger naturally. Understand that. It's still good to give a hug. And for people to understand, I am deeply loved here. And I'm going to be willing to speak some difficult truth or receive it when it's necessary. And if you're the person who's delivering some difficult truth, let me just urge you, consider, consider, consider the way you speak. The words you use, but their content and their tone, the time and place of delivery. Everybody knows if you find somebody at a stressed out portion of their day, After the end of three months of exhausting work, that's not the best time to deliver that. Carefully consider these things. Act in wisdom. Because when we're talking about idols of the heart, things that drive us to favoritism or to jealousy, that is really deep digging, isn't it? It's really sensitive work. And so we got to be on the front end developing deep relationships. we got to be looking inward saying, are these things I actually need? 
and then speaking in love and being humble to receive it. So the, the brothers, they act in wisdom. But the third thing they do is this. They ask for grace. They acknowledge where they're at. Hey, we got a problem. we got to do something. And they take a couple of wise steps. And while taking the wise step, they recognize, I have to ask for grace. Verse 14. Now, this immediately follows all the pistachio nuts and the almonds and the gum and the myrrh and the money and all that jazz they took. Here's what immediately follows that. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send you back to your brother Benjamin. That's Jacob speaking. Here's what Jacob says. Look, guys, I recognize where we're at. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take step A, B, C, D, and E. We're going to have a family intervention. We're going to get a whiteboard out. We're going to get our... Excel Docker spreadsheet, we're going to make all of our plans, and then we're going to recognize that we have to ask for God's grace in this. Because if God is not the one prospering us, it does not matter how well we plan. The Lord is the one who's got to open up this guy's heart. We can take wise steps, but he's got to work here. They're actually pulling back. When he says God Almighty there in verse 14, he's pulling on Genesis 17.1, the promise that God made to Abraham he refers to himself as, I am God Almighty, covenant-making God who will be with you. May our covenant God go before you. And I understand that this third point, it might feel somewhat obvious to you. It might feel like the Sunday school answer, pray about it, got to be part of the sermon, I get that. But to the extent that you feel that, like, isn't this just kind of a necessary part of it? Recognize there may be a temptation in your heart to skip that step or to take that step too lightly. Yeah, and I understand God's kind of involved in this, but I've got to work in this way. Maybe it would be good for you to commit Psalm 127.1 to memory. Here's what it says. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Unless God is building the house, and God, unless God is watching over the city, unless he's actively at work, our plans are going to be fruitless. We are not going to overcome these things. Maybe Philippians 2.13 would be a good verse for you to commit to memory. Here's what it says. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God, I recognize I need you to work in me, to will and to work, to give me the strength and the desire to do this thing. I ask for grace. And so what it looks like in a, from a prayer standpoint is I simply say, say, Jesus, I don't know exactly why I'm gripped by this thing so much. I'm not sure. But boy, it does have a, a hold on me. And I would love for it not to have a hold on me. So Jesus, would you please make my hands strong for battle in attacking this jealousy, this favoritism, this bad habit with my speech, this wrong thought pattern. Make my hands strong for battle in that way. Jesus, would you please open my eyes to see this as a thorny bush that's killing the flowers in my life that must be uprooted. And Jesus, would you please give me free grace, undeserved grace, that would loose the chains of this thing around me so I could walk in holiness and be more like you. I ask for grace. Which brings us then to the, the fourth and the final thing I think we see in this passage. We see the brothers adore the God of generosity. They acknowledge where they're at. While they act in wisdom, they also ask for grace. 
And I think we actually see them adoring the God of generosity. So they get to Egypt, and the officials come out to meet them, and they immediately launch into their defense. They're not even into the court yet. Hey, the first time we were just trying to get food, we were, we were really not trying to do anything wrong, we promised. We ended up with all this money, we don't know what happened. Here it is, we're, we're bringing our extra back, is, is basically the way the conversation goes. And the official looks at him. In verse 23, his response is really interesting. Look at verse 23 with me. He's, he replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Don't miss how amazing that is. This Egyptian official looks at them and says, your God and the God of your fathers put that money in the sack for you. He's the one who's prospering you. He was the one who's taking care of you. We don't know if this guy believed in the God of the Bible or not, but somehow he knew to say this. He says, look, I received your money. And this is one of the most dominant themes of the whole Bible, just saying, look, God has been so generous to us. Joseph welcomes them in. He seats them, oldest to youngest, which is sort of an amazing thing in its own right. They're middle-aged men. And he seats them, oldest to youngest, the oldest getting the most honor. And again, remember, they don't know that he knows who they are. So how does he know the perfect age is one through 11, oldest to youngest? That's why the passage used that word amazement. They looked at each other in awe and wonder, like, how does he know? And it seems like the oldest is being honored rightly, all the way down to the youngest. They get all their food, and then the youngest, Benjamin, gets five times more than anybody else. Not supposed to be this way. Look at verse 34, last, last verse of the chapter. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. They get all mad about it? Nope. They drank and were merry with him. Now, based on their track record, what do we expect to find here? We're having a good time. We get all this food. We're welcomed in. And the, the youngest gets shown favoritism again. Doggone it, this is our lot in life. Why does this keep happening to us? That's what Joseph thinks is most likely going to happen. But what happens? They seem unfazed. They say, it's all right. Let's keep going. So Joseph gave this out. And so Benjamin got a little more. Pour it on. Give him as much as he wants. It's okay. Why? Because they recognize that God has been so generous to them. Yeah, maybe he gets a little more than us. But God's been so generous to me. How could I complain about something else? Look at what he's done for me. And if you would zoom ahead to the New Testament, you would see this theme all over Jesus' teaching. Matthew 18, he tells a parable of an unmerciful servant. The basic principle is this guy loses sight of how much Jesus has done for him. The generosity. And he gets upset and he gets jealous and says, no, you've got to pay me more. Two chapters later, Matthew 20, Jesus tells a parable about laborers in a vineyard. They labor all day. Some work 12 hours, some work nine, six, three. Some work only an hour, and everybody gets paid the same. And they get grumpy about it. And Jesus says, don't you understand how generous I've been to all of you? 
see how generous I am. So for us, we look inward. We say, man, the God who made every distant galaxy, every bright and shining star, is the same God who knows your name. The God who controls all these tiny subatomic particles that we can't even see with microscopes, the God who knows about every single bird of the air, he's the God who knows about every single hair on your head. Or how many hairs are not on your head. The God who's made all of these rainbows, majestic mountain ranges, all of these waterfalls. He can look at them at any time he wants. He takes more delight in you as his child than any of that beauty. That God who's got all of that going on would be exceedingly generous, not just in knowing about you and the hairs on your head and how he's going to feed you, not just knowing about your family, not just delighting in you, but sending his son for you. Romans 8, 32, he who spared not his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's so generous. The brothers caught a vision of that. Incomplete, but a vision of it. And it changed their perspective. It broke the chokehold of the jealousy in their life. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 speaks of Jesus. Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor. He generously gave of everything, including his own blood, so that we, by his poverty, might be made rich. The generosity of God. And so frequently we walk around saying, there are things that I think that I need, and that defines the goodness of God. Has he given me the things that I think I need? And we misunderstand his generosity because of it. We get our eyes off the gospel. There's a story in in, in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus sends out 72 disciples and they go out and he says, I'm going to commission you guys. You're going to do this amazing stuff. Demons will be cast out. You're going to be healing people. It's going to be incredible. They go out and it happens just like Jesus said. And they come back and they say, Jesus, you won't believe it. We cast out demons. And he resists saying, I told you so. And he says, he says the most remarkable thing. He says, be more excited that your name is written in heaven than that you can subject the demons. In other words, he says, be more excited about your Savior than that your Savior would make you successful. Because what he's done for you in saving you and dying on the cross, shedding his blood, rising again, is far greater than anything you could ever see on this earth. And once I get a clear view of what he's done for me on the cross, it doesn't take away the temptations towards jealousy or favoritism or anything else going on in my life. But where I used to be white-knuckled around this stuff, I slowly feel my hands start to be loosed and pry open. I remember one of my spiritual fathers, Tim Keller, saying it this way. He said, when I forget the gospel... I become dependent on the smiles and evaluation of others. Because there are things that I think I need and I forget who he has made me, 
that he's given me a received identity, not an achieved identity. And I start to think I need things I don't. I lose sight of his generosity. Friends, the brothers saw it in Genesis 43. We've got to see it every single day in our lives. The generosity of God in sending his son, he who spared not his own son, will graciously give us all things that we need as well. Let's pray.